I'm Shona Thompson filling in for Bill Kelly. And on the podcast today, latest polling in the Ontario election with a few surprising bits of information. A look at how Doug Ford may have changed Ontario politics going forward. What is your level of expertise when it comes to protecting your kids online? The Bill Kelly podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The latest polling is just out for the Ontario election. This one was done by Leger. And with this campaign at about the halfway mark, I thought we'd check in and see what's happening and if any trends are starting to emerge. Joining us is the Executive Vice President for Leger, Andrew Enns. Good morning. Morning, Shona. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, I appreciate you making time for us. Um, Let's start with a little bit of background. How and when was the poll done? Uh, The poll was done uh, uh, last weekend uh, between the dates of May 13th and 15th. It's an online poll, uh, so it was done over the uh, over the Internet. Uh, using our uh, our panel. So it was done uh, before the debates uh, occurred er earlier this week. I'm not sure if the debate is going to move the needle for anybody, but that's a poll for another day. (laughs) What are some of the what are some of the key points from this one? Well, I think, uh, you know, in your uh, in your intro, you talked about sort of, you know, here we are, we're we're at the halfway point and and uh, what are some trends? The governing PCs have went into this election in a in a fairly strong position, holding a lead, and they've continued to hold that lead. It's shrunk a little, um, but they still are. They still are in a in I would say in still a fairly solid position uh, and they'll be focused on trying to maintain what what momentum they had in the first half of the campaign uh, to the finish line. I'd say the the other trend is is uh, you know early uh, early on before the election um, there was a, a a bit of a tug of war between the Liberals and the NDP who is going to be second place and and be able to sort of claim the um, the alternative governing uh, uh, label and it and it looks like at this point in time you know in our polling Stephen Del Duca has has managed to sort of put the Liberals in second place we've had them there for a couple of polls now so so that would look like um, you know. Good news, I think, for them. They were obviously coming coming from way back in 2018, but and less good news, I would say, for Andrea Horvath in the in the NDP. Um, and you know, it's kind of interesting because a lot of people think, you know, well, <clears throat> if you don't win the election, so what? But it does really matter. It's who's going to form the opposition, and uh, and there are some financial implications for how your party finishes as well. Well, for sure. I mean, um, you know, first of all, uh, obviously, the, the the big prize is you know forming government and and being able to uh, to make the decisions uh, in Ontario. Obviously, you know, the leader of the opposition is is the the next best. And and uh, you know, I think the the Liberals and the PCs had for a long time kind of interchanged those. And in the 2018 election, that actually uh, a wrench was thrown in with Andrea Horvath doing doing quite well and taking over that. But, um, but you know, at, at an individual level, candidates uh, obviously all are working hard. They, there's a certain threshold of, of votes they need at the riding level in order to get uh, some returns back for the expenses they've put out in the campaign. So there is there is considerable uh, on the line in, in elections and, and uh, you know, these, these people who run, um, you know, they, they put that on the line when they put their name forward. Well, I'm so glad that you uh, included a, a lot of information and, and did a greater deep dive in this poll, because some of those stats are the things that I really like to dig into. I am a politics nerd. Um, <laughs> and uh, under the uh, perceived front runner section, it really 
you know, it doesn't seem to be a surprise because it's, well, I mean, you've got the breakdown there. So why don't you tell us? Well, sure. Look, I mean, the perceived front runner, um, you know, Premier Ford is, is uh, you know, regardless of how people are going to vote, um, you do see, you know, uh, Ontarians generally, almost half of them, 48% feeling that, that at the end of the day, uh, uh, Premier Ford and the PCs will win this election and, and uh, continue to govern. Um, you see that really strongly amongst the, those who are voting PC, but but it's it, it is somewhat indicative of of other campaigns when you know for the NDP a quarter of their supporters still feel that that Ford will win this election and and over a third of of Liberal voters um, feel so. I mean, you know, if you're a Liberal or an NDP, or I mean, that's probably a challenge in the sense that you haven't even amongst your own support motivated enough to say that guys we have a real shot here um you know so it's interesting well one of the things that uh, really struck me was that uh, according to your poll about 30 percent don't know who the perceived front runner is right well and, and you know in part you could say that's people who who really are you know they're 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 not uh, they're not sure it could go you know they still feel could go either way um I think in part, though, Shona, there, there's also an element in, in, in society, not just in Ontario, but quite frankly, uh, you know, across the country where there's there's a lot of indifference to politics. And so the don't know, I mean, I might have I might have put an answer choice in my question that said, don't care. <laughs> and I might have I might have got some of that in there, too. So, well, you do it's ha- unfortunate. You do have that under the uh, heading of engagement levels. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I do have a bit of that there that, uh, you know, where where you've got sort of 37 percent aren't following uh, aren't following the election, uh, you know, at all. So, you know, and and that's where you'll see some of that crossover of of people, you know, not knowing who the front runner, uh, you know, are not offering an opinion on that. Yeah. But the other thing that I thought was very interesting, that uh, under engagement, about 60 percent are either very engaged in following this election closely or are pretty much following it. They're following it at least, they yep. check in once a week or so. And that is higher than I would have thought. Well, yeah, I, you know, it's hard to hard to say. I think I've asked this question periodically in other elections, and I recall um, asking it in 2015 federally. And uh, if you recall, that was with between Stephen Harper and, and Justin Trudeau. And uh, there was some pretty high engagement, uh, you know, at that point. Um, but this isn't bad for sure with 60%, I would say, uh, you know, at least checking in on it uh, at a minimum a few times a week, um, you know, which is, uh, you know, which is a good number. You see that number um, a little bit higher amongst, uh, you know, amongst men and certainly higher amongst older Ontarians, um, you know, in terms of uh, those being uh, 55 years old and, and uh, older. But uh, hopefully it translates into people uh, making the effort to get out and vote on June 2nd. Yeah. We're speaking with Executive Vice President for Leger, Andrew Enns, about their latest polling. I think one of the things that people, when they're checking in either very closely or at least once a week, that's when a new poll comes out. (laughs) Well, in part, we try to, uh, you know, we try to keep things interesting and give people a bit of a glimpse in terms of how things are are shaping up uh, uh, over the week of the campaign. 
Well, under the heading of uh, liking to do a deep dive, and I'm really grateful you did this, uh, you were able to track uh, some of the reaction to the campaign promises that have been coming out. And I know uh, Del Duca is like a promise a day sort of thing, and he's made a commitment to do that right up until the election. But I was very interested to see how some of these campaign promises are landing with people because there were a few things I didn't expect. Yeah, I, I found them interesting. And obviously, you know, this wasn't, we didn't test sort of a real, like the full list of all the party's promises. I think it would have taken too long, but uh, we, we sort of pulled out some that that stood out and, and, uh, and were fairly uh, somewhat unique. And what we found were, there's a couple of interesting things. First of all, the, the, the more popular promises were the one by the NDP regarding um, a low-cost dental care program, um, sort of paralleling or piggybacking onto, I think, some, some discussions at the federal level. Uh, the, the regulation of gasoline prices was another very popular promise. Again, I think that was an NDP promise. Over 60% of Ontarians thought uh, they would support that and it would be good for Ontario. And then the third down the list was the removing tolls on publicly owned uh, highways. And I think that was a Tory um, a PC promise. And, and that was a little over uh, half, 56% supported. The the one that I was a bit surprised uh, because it, it I think it it might, might be the biggest sort of standout promise in terms of being kind of out there was the public transit fares on the GO train and, and all the other public transit down to a, a, a dollar a ride, sort of that a buck a ride, I think it's been uh, been described. It's popular, but, uh, you know, 54%. So a majority of Ontarians uh, felt it would be good for Ontario and they'd support it. But I, I kind of wondered if it wouldn't be a, a little bit higher, but but there it is. Well, and also um, right after that, only about 50% were actually pretty happy about removing driver licensing right. fees even though those of us who paid it got a check. <laughs> yeah, I, I, exactly. You know, so there's a couple that, that have been, uh, you know, fairly, uh, you know, touted as, as, you know, significant promises and having significant expenses associated with the promise. Um, and yet they don't seem to resonate as much as some of the ones that, uh, um, you know, quite frankly, they're, you know, you talk about the driver licensing fees. I mean, there's that's a tangible. It's it's um, people. Some people have already experienced the benefit, and yet it doesn't quite register. Doesn't register near as high as some of the other ones, like um, you know, the dental care or regulating uh, you know gas prices. And and the one that really surprised me, which is at the bottom of this list, and I don't know Correct. how far down the list of campaign promises you went, but on the bottom of this list in this poll is the four thirteen. Yeah. Yeah, no, that and again, that's a fairly big promise of the of of uh, Premier Ford and the PCs, and it's really not. Um, it's 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 almost more a, a bit more of a divisive promise, quite frankly. If you look at the way the 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 support opposed splits, thirty two percent of Ontarians felt it would be good for Ontario and they would support it, and thirty six percent, you know, said that they felt it wouldn't it would be bad for Ontario and they'd oppose it. So. And then a quarter uh, were were really quite undecided on on this one, so it uh, yeah that one was interesting because again it's a it's a fairly significant promise from from what I've been seeing in the media. Yeah, it's a, it's a ten billion dollar promise, and it really divides um, the electorate in terms of you know who's in favor of development and um, and you know housing and that sort of thing, as opposed right. to those who are uh, concerned about the environmental impacts. Yeah, I I think it. Uh, 
Yeah, it's it's interesting, uh, you know, in terms of that, uh, you know, that one. It, it's obviously, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to know if the parties do some of their own internal research to determine, you know, which voters in particular get uh, get uh, get more supportive around some of these things. But, but yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, um, you know a neat list of uh, of promises, and and we see some with uh, with traction. I think the the other thing, uh, Shona, if I if I can just add one second is. You know, the couple of the promises by the NDP have clearly have some of the strongest support amongst the amongst the voters. It doesn't seem to be generating the actual ballot support for the NDP, which is uh, which I find a bit interesting in, in the sense that, you know, they're the party making those two big promises. But it but it doesn't seem to be uh, doesn't seem to be sticking in terms of uh, actually deciding I might vote for the NDP. Well, that's it. I mean, that's the old question of, you know, are elections won on policy or personality? Right. And well, that's well, very well put, because I think in in this election, I think, uh, you know, personality, uh, leader personalities uh, are playing a factor and uh, to some degree, of, you know, a pretty significant factor in terms of how people are deciding to vote. Well, and further to that, there's another section in your poll that I thought was really interesting because it, it might be sort of a dichotomy of the consciousness of the electorate. Um, and that's the part where you're talking about confidence in following through on campaign promises. Yeah, it goes to, um, well, it, you know, in part, it goes to that that 30 percent that uh, we talked about earlier that uh you know, uh, don't know who the front runner is. This this indifference. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of cynicism in uh, you know not just Ontario again, but across the country, and well, quite frankly, across uh, uh, you know a lot of Western democracies with respect to uh, you know the promises and and uh, you know what's said in the campaign and what's done when in government, and and we see it here in our poll with with all parties. You know, we asked a question, how confident are you that the parties listed below will follow through with and implement the promises they're making during the campaign? And, you know, I think the 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 NDP scored highest at 36 percent of of Ontarians saying they're they're at least, uh, you know, somewhat confident that the NDP could follow through, followed by the the PCs at 33 percent. Like it's it's not a resounding, uh, you know, vote of uh, affirmant that uh, that if you if elected you'll get these things done so it's it's unfortunate yeah it's it's going to be interesting um i'm wondering because we only have a couple of minutes left with you and i know i could talk about this all day long um but how how do you see this poll being used because you do a pretty deep dive on a lot of the issues and particulars about how this might track in the next couple of weeks well i you know i think i i, I like to think of the, the parties take you know, take uh, take some uh, mind of, of the polls that are out there, not just the ones internally. And obviously, some will be looking at uh, you know at some of these uh, the, the promises and and where they're resonating. Some of the promises, uh, you know, obviously we don't have a lot of time to get in, but some promises, uh, you know, have greater traction in certain parts of Ontario, and so they might want to focus some of those. Uh, you know some of the the messaging around the promise in those in those particular regions and with some of those uh, particular voters by demographic i think uh, you know to be honest shona i mean we're heading into a long weekend and i think it's at a point in the campaign where where uh, you know the, the, there'll be a there'll be a bit of a lull in the campaign i would say in terms of the events will uh, will become a bit more uh, you know maybe a little less um, 
frequent over a couple days in this long weekend. And internally, I think parties are really going to sit and, and reflect on where they're at currently and the next 10 days. Yeah. Because uh, as you as you say it, it's it's a sprint to the uh, you know it's it's a sprint now to the uh, to the end, and the parties will need to will need to reflect on what's best what's the best path to take. Especially since uh, this weekend, we just heard this morning that Andrea Horvath has tested positive for COVID-19. Mike Schreiner has tested positive for COVID-19. So there's not going to be a lot of uh, uh, campaign events this weekend, at least from those two parties. So that'll be interesting uh, to see. I hadn't heard that. That's that's uh, that's too bad. That's uh, don't uh, wish upon that for anybody. Hopefully it's a a speedy recovery and they're back on in uh, next week. Absolutely. But thank you for your time, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation, Sean. Have a good rest of your show. Thank you. Andrew Enns is Executive Vice President for Leger. Election Day in Ontario was June 2nd. Advanced polling already underway. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Like him or not, Doug Ford has been a big force in Ontario politics. A recent op-ed suggests that he's changing politics in this province, and it may stay that way going forward. The op-ed was written by Mark Winfield, political scientist and professor of environmental studies at York University, and he joins us now. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Uh, Your op-ed suggests that uh, Ford has changed Ontario politics in four ways. What are those four ways? Well, the four themes that we've looked at in the op-ed are are sort of looking at the the government's overall approach. And there seem to be these four elements that the first is is that the basic governance mode that the Ford government has tended to follow is very reactive. Um, It tends, it came to office without a very clear notion of what it is the province should do other than cut taxes, red tape and hydro rates. And when confronted with more complex problems like COVID, um, it has tended to sort of let things reach a crisis point uh, before responding, as opposed to a more um, proactive approach, which would sort of see we can see problems coming and then we take steps to stop them becoming crises. Um, the second theme that we've emphasized is um, a degree of, of what I've called sort of creeping authoritarianism. It's a very, very assertive use of provincial power, um, invoking Section 33 of the Charter, which is the override clause on, on one occasion and threatening to do on other occasions. And we've seen this especially in areas like land use planning, where it's been very aggressive moves to overrule uh, decisions by local councils and indeed sort of doubling down on that. We've seen provincial agencies like Metrolinks given given a great deal of powers, really quite extraordinary powers, uh, to push aside anything that gets in their way. Uh, the third thing we highlighted was was uh, what we I called friends with benefits, is that that the government on one hand has gone to great lengths to to silence critics. They they use the section 33 of the charter to change election financing rules in part to try and silence potential critics during the election campaign. But on the other hand, if if you're a friend of the government, they seem to be very, very receptive. If you're a developer, um, if you're the mining industry, certain others, long for-profit long-term care is another example, then the government tends to be exceptionally receptive to their suggestions. And the last thing we've highlighted, and again, a break from what we've seen in Ontario politics is, is um, a tendency to spend money, but not to think very much about where the money to replace it's going to come from. Uh, so we've seen this in things like cast, canceling the cap and trade program, which cost billions. 
um, canceling license plate fees, which is short-term savings, but cost the provincial treasury a billion dollars a year. Um, the highway projects have been highlighted as well, the cost of the 413 at 10 billion. Uh, and indeed the deficit in the most recent budget is projected at 19.9 billion, which is a record for the province. So this is quite different from what we're used to seeing from provincial governments in Ontario, which have traditionally emphasized moderation, administrative competence and, and fiscal prudence. Okay, let's do a deeper dive on, on some of these um, basic topics that you have. On reactive governments, when COVID-19 landed, it was a shock and awe for every level of government. Did they really react differently than, than say, the Trudeau government did? Well, I think I think the way we looked at it, initially, all governments, particularly in the first wave, were were a little slow on the uptake, and that criticism applies to the federal government as well. That there were concerns that they were too slow about travel restrictions. I think with the Ford government, where this becomes more apparent is in the subsequent waves, where we saw this consistent pattern of you would see the science advisory table saying, "Look, we've got trouble brewing here." We've got another wave coming, recommending that that some uh, restrictions be put in place proactively. And instead, you kept having this repeating pattern of the government being caught on a back foot, sort of reacting once things had hit a crisis point, so the point the hospitals were, were screaming were in trouble, and then having to adopt very, very aggressive measures at that stage. So I, the, the argument is that, that, that one, if the government had been perhaps in a more proactive kind of mode, might have been open to the advice that it was getting earlier and reacted more effectively as opposed to dealing with things once they'd reached a crisis stage. Um, creeping authoritarianism. The, when I saw that headline, um, I really actually thought about something um, that was reactive in terms of governance with regard to COVID, although you, you expand it to how um, the provincial government is treating the municipal governments of Ontario. And there were two key areas. Yeah, there's been a couple of things that that sort of stand out. I mean, one was obviously the the very arbitrary moves that were made in relation to the City of Toronto Council very early on and cutting the council in half. Um, What's been more systemic, though, has been um, the province's use of its powers uh, to override uh, decisions being made by municipal councils through typically through minister, ministerial zoning orders, although it's been done in other ways as well. And, and where that's happened, it seems to have been almost universally in favor of, of development interests. There's a number of cases here in Midtown Toronto, in Richmond Hill, in, in Markham, north of Toronto, where councils had gone through fairly elaborate processes to design fairly intense development as it was, but also tried to pay attention to affordability and livability. And the province just came in and completely overrode what they were doing um, the, in favor of, of hyper-intensive development instead, very much in favor of, of the developers who own the land in question. Um, and then the other area where we've seen this very much so is, is with uh, uh, the Metrolinx, um, which has got a mandate to build transit infrastructure. But again, we've seen, particularly through the Building Transit Faster Act, but other pieces of legislation as well, if you look in detail, Metrolinx has been given some really quite extraordinary powers uh, to, to overrule anything that gets in its way or any one. Um, which, again, is, is kind of striking. I mean, they're given powers that normally you'd have to go to court to be able to exercise, for example. So that's very striking. 
And then the third in that area that, that is really noteworthy has been uh, the government reaching for the first time in the history of the province uh, for Section 33 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which essentially allows the province to override people's basic rights in terms of freedom of expression, freedom of association. Um, this was threatened in relation to the City of, City of Toronto Council and then actually done uh, last summer to the province's election finance legislation. If I can just bounce back for a second under uh, the issue of the Ford government and um, imposing its will on the municipalities in terms of their planning. That is a very key issue in Hamilton right now. Uh, Hamilton's urban boundary is under debate. City councillors are poised to finalize the growth strategy that's going to be submitted to the province for approval. Uh, Hamilton's uh, city council has decided more on an urban boundary or um, uh, an intensification strategy as opposed to expanding the urban boundary for greater development in a suburban sort of format. And there, it looks like there's going to be quite a square off. Hamilton City Council is already putting together uh, or at least identifying how much money it's going to take to fight this at the Ontario Land Tribunal because they're expecting a fight from the province. There's a fight from the province and a fight from the developers. And of course, the, the risk, given the pattern that we've seen so far, indeed, the province has already hinted at this in relation to Hamilton, is again, it may just use the minister's powers uh, to simply override the council and, and dispense with having to make a trip to the OLT at all. Uh, and that would be very consistent with the the pattern that we've been seeing in other places. And, and I do think uh, this is potentially becoming an area of significant risk for the province, that there is pushback happening in places like Hamilton, Markham, Richmond Hill, Toronto, other places which have been affected by this kind of very, very top-down, very, very authoritarian use of provincial power. Um, so that is, I think, an area of some vulnerability for the Ford government. It may have gone, be going way too far in terms of the efforts of municipalities to accommodate growth. And indeed, in the case of Hamilton, um, what the city is trying to do is, is consistent with what the province in the past has said it wants to see, which is, which is less sprawl and more intensification. And going with that is Hamilton's plan for LRT, because a lot of the development has been going on in and around the uh, the 14-kilometer stretch through downtown Hamilton running east and west. Um, but as you're saying, uh, Metrolinx has some broad-sweeping powers with regard to that. Well, they do. I mean, Metrolinx has increasingly sort of become a, a law unto itself, but at the same time, a kind of instrument of, of provincial power as well and has been executing transit projects, many of which around which there are big questions about do they make sense or the way in which they're being done, do they make sense, uh, which, which Metrolinx is effectively being mandated by the province to just proceed in the way the province wants it to. Um, and I don't think that is a good basis for planning. Uh, it ends up with a deeply politicized decision-making process, and it also becomes very problematic from the viewpoint of municipalities that are trying to plan around transit infrastructure and make plans that ensure affordability and livability uh, around, while well, sort of accommodating significant intensification. That's very hard to do when you have metro links in the province just coming in and simply overriding uh, what you've proposed to do, and usually in favor of very, very intensive 
uh, certainly what we've seen in Toronto, Richmond Hill, Markham, very, very intensive high-rise development and, and very little attention uh, to what we used to call complete communities, a mix of use, uh, paying attention to design, livability, public spaces. Those sorts of things are just being overridden. We're speaking with Mark Winfield, who's a political scientist and professor of environmental studies at York University, about uh, his op-ed piece in the conversation called Ontario Election, Four Ways That Doug Ford Has Changed the Province's Politics. Uh, We only have about six minutes left with you, so I want to make sure we get to the other two um, areas that you have earmarked. One is benefiting friends. I'm just wondering, is Ford doing that more than other governments have done? I think so. I think it's become remarkably direct and explicit. Um, This has certainly been, I think, most evident around um, the land use planning issues that where we've seen exercises of ministerial zoning orders and exercises of, of similar powers to override municipal decisions that has been almost exclusively in favor of development interests. And in the case of Midtown Toronto, where I live, I mean, we've got very clear evidence that the, the planning rules were quite literally rewritten uh, exactly the way the developers wanted them to be rewritten. And we have other instances of that as well. But there are other cases where you've seen this as well. The, the other one, one of the others that we highlighted, for example, of course, is, is the issue of long-term care in the post-COVID environment. And indeed, the province had a sort of commission of inquiry into long-term care. And one of the recommendations there was that you push the for-profits out. Uh, that Their record during COVID was, was fairly disastrous. Um, and yet what we saw was, was the opposite, that, that not only were the private operators shielded through legislation adopted by the province, but then the province also has effectively subsidized the creation of more for-profit long-term care beds. Um, There are other examples you come across too when you get down into the weeds where um, you see reports that are basically supposed to be strategies around different things like mining that are basically just consolidations of everything the industry lobbyists have told the government. The other, uh, the other headline you had was spending but not increasing taxes. Is the money for the spend coming from uh, gas taxes? Because, you know, that price has never been as high as it is now. No. Uh, well, and of course, the, 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 where, where the money is coming from at the moment is, is deficit. Um, that the province has projected for the current year the, is a $19.9 billion deficit, which would be a record for Ontario. Um, I mean, the government did propose to cut gas taxes, although the impact of that relative to the structural price increases that we're seeing in gas is is utterly marginal. It's a few cents relative to these very large increases, which are driven by factors completely outside of the province's control, indeed anyone anyone in Canada's control in many ways. Um, So what you see is, is sort of things that cut into the revenue base, um, but then no sort of replacement of those revenues for some from for somewhere else. So in the long term, you do have to wonder, well, how are we going to pay for schools and hospitals and other things? You can't run those kinds of deficits forever in the interest of, of keeping costs down in the short term. And that becomes an even bigger problem as we see interest rates rising for the last few years. Governments have been able to borrow for virtually nothing 
that is changing. And that means that the cost of that borrowing going forward, that $19 billion for this year, for example, is going to start to eat up more and more of the provincial budget. So that becomes a, a very significant long-term problem. Um, I, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I really wanted to ask you this question. Your article concludes with, June 2nd could be a watershed moment in the province's history, defining a new normal for politics in Ontario. That seems to indicate that this isn't a Ford-era style, that others are going to clamp onto this. So do you mean future PC leaders or leaders of all parties? Well, I think I think this is part of the question, and this is 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 do we, you know, in Ontario politics, we've we've traditionally sort of thought of things as more in the sort of successes defined by the Bill Davis kind of mode, uh, of of moderation, administrative competence, fiscal prudence, and if the sort of approach that we've described here, which is which is more populist, uh, with some hints of authoritarianism to them. Um, is successful um, on June 2nd, then you do have to wonder, well, are, are, are other parties going to then say, well, that's that's now what the public wants from their provincial government, and, and that's where we need to go as well. And you see hints of that a little bit in some of the platforms as, from the other parties, where they're in some cases trying to sort of out Doug Ford, Doug Ford. Um, so I think that that kind of hangs in the balance as a question is, is is this really going to represent a shift in the way we do politics and in the sort of agenda that Mr. An approach that Mr. Ford has taken uh, going to be affirmed? And is it then going to be one that, that other parties are going to feel some compulsion to follow? Yeah, power is one thing no political party ever wants to give up in any way, yeah. shape or form once once yeah. attained. Mark Winfield joining us, political scientist and professor of environmental studies with York University. Thank you for your time. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, You can uh, check out his op-ed piece, Four Ways Doug Ford Has Changed the Province's Politics. Again, our guest, Mark Winfield. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A global study has found that almost all parents worldwide recognize their role as their child's online protector, but there's a big gap between wanting to be able to do that and knowing how to do it. The study was done by McAfee, and joining us now is Sachin Puri, Vice President of Marketing at McAfee. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited to be here. In a way, this isn't surprising that there's a gap, but it's pretty scary. Yes, uh, our our kids probably do not have as much trust on us as we would want to protect them. I'm a parent myself, so the study was very revealing for me as well. And, you know, if you have more than one child, <laughs> that's, that's a lot <laughs> yeah, of balls to keep in the air. That's a lot of uh, tracking to do. Let's say God bless. <laughs> Um, so how early are kids going online, according to your study? So we, uh, it's a 10-country uh, study, and, uh, and typically one of the things that we found a common across all countries is by the age of 15 and 16, they hit their online stride almost at the similar level that carries through into their adulthood. And we are talking about adult-grade uh, internet usage right now. And largely it is driven from mobile usage, which jumps pretty significantly as well. Oh, of course it does. <laughs> but um, it's also interesting um, because I, I kind of thought that maybe kids were starting to track younger and younger in terms of going online for the first time and starting to have their own profiles. Yes, they do. They start going uh, online pretty young. Uh, 
and it varies by different countries. But by the time they hit 15 and 16, they're pretty much hitting their strides when it comes to mobile. And uh, I want to connect back to what you were saying earlier, which is parent as a safekeeper, which is exactly right, is how uh, our study has revealed. And this is consistent across across the world in, in the 10 countries that we have done the research that uh, that kids and parents view themselves uh, view their role as protector, just like everybody, uh, other things in life. Uh, and so is it the case in the online protection too. However, there is a huge demarcation and that's the revolution that we found is uh, while 56% of parents said that they protect their smartphone with passwords and passcodes, 56%, so nearly half, do not protect their own smartphone with passwords. Uh, but if you think of that number for children, it drops significantly to 42%. So less than half kids' smartphones, ch- children's smartphones are even password protected. That's a 14% drop from what parents are doing for themselves versus what they are doing for children. So they're doing more for themselves than they are for the kids. Yes, but they're not doing enough for themselves either. It's only 56%. So the remaining nearly half, uh, if you happen to miss out your smartphone in an Uber, or you forget it in a coffee shop. It's all exposed without a password. And everybody, like, you keep your life on your phone nowadays. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. And and, and your money. <laughs> uh, yeah, that there is that too. And, and the other interesting thing that we found with respect to this study as well, since you mentioned life, is there is a secret life for teens and tweens as well, Shona. And they would like to protect it too. Uh, so as as they start building their connected life online, here are the three things that they do. And we ask this question all the time, like what are kids doing online? And as parents, you would want to know. And the three things that we, we found across the board consistent is one, watching short videos, streaming music, and then browsing the web. So when you think of uh, that protection, about 59% more than half of the children, they act to hide their online activity as well. So they respect and prefer to maintain their privacy as well. And it starts from as simple as clearing their browser history to actually omitting the details of what they are doing online. So if you reflect back experience, they they, re- they respect their privacy as well and they expect others too. So not surprisingly, they know a little bit more about hiding their tracks than the parents <laughs> do. They do, they do, and uh, in and this was uh, this was also something that uh, was particularly different, a uh, little bit more pronounced in Canada. So in Canada, what we found is uh, about fifty-seven percent of the children think that their parents don't know enough, uh, which was six percent lower than worldwide average. But what was also shocking to your point is what study confirms is. 46% of think that they know more than their parents. It's an evolving digital world, which is 11% higher than the global average. Well, you know, and that's so true because, you know, as soon as a parent finds out about, uh, like, say, Snapchat or whatever, Snapchat is done. The kids are onto something else because the cool points <laughs> are out because now mom and dad know about it. Yes. Yeah. So here's another th- interesting thing. I, I think you will appreciate this um, is... What other thing which was really surprising intention that we found in the study is there was a gendered protection bias. But what that means is if what we wanted to check if girls experience more dangers online. 
and uh, and study revealed some really interesting facts around that like parents appear to see boys and girls differently when it comes to protecting them online and there is an apparent gender bias and there's enough media around cyberbullying and everything else but what we found is uh it's boys who encounter more issues online really i mean yeah so about 23% of parents check email history on pcs for girls age 10 and 14 but only 16% for boys and what that really underscores for 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 everybody all the parents and and for me too i have nieces and nephews is we it is the importance of protecting children all children online and them and and yourself uh so it was pretty pretty revealing for us that as well so how what should parents do how should they find out more how can they protect their kids yeah i think it really at the core comes down to uh like cybersecurity protection uh at at the at the core of it so i'll i'll give one data point and then i'll jump into very clear uh, uh call to action for parents as well what we found is 10% less av is used even if it is available to everywhere uh on kids devices and that drops to like minus 9% versus parents using for themselves versus their mobile uh, versus for their kids so so the call to action from my standpoint at the core is uh is to leverage uh award winning antivirus that defends you your kids against viruses online threats ransomware uh privacy identity as well as use patches on your on your cell phone as well as your pc and for your kids too and uh we we are privileged to be in this in this space so if you're looking for professional software solutions that are built to do this uh you can visit macafee.com and look for macafee total protection that provides cross device protection on your pcs on mac device ios and android device so that would be my call to action to the parents out there it was it was really interesting to see all the findings from the research yeah i guess uh, step 1 for any parent if you want to really protect your kid make sure you're protected and you know how to do it the it uh... starts from you <laughs> It's like putting your oxygen mask first and then helping the one next to you. Absolutely. Um there is also that question and and you touched on it earlier. I mean there's one thing about um you know protecting your kids privacy and wanting to know what the threats are, but there comes a point in every parent's life and usually too soon where your kid is going to cut you out. It does happen that too. So the confidence on ki- uh, on parents uh drop over the period of time uh and and that delta increases but there are still a confidence and the trust that exists so i would say start early uh educate empower uh and enable kids to experience more their life online they are in the age they have to experience everything they learn from experiences and uh to enable that just just coaching right online protection early on what is right what is not uh enables them i would uh we invest pretty significantly in this content so if you go to macafee.com/blogs we have ton of content very easy simple to understand very consumer focused parents focused written by parents sharing their tips and techniques what what kids can do i think you talked about uh Uh, Snapchat. We have blogs of what should 
parents and kids know if they're using TikTok. Is TikTok good or not? So things of that nature, we have invested into those content so that consumers out there can coach the kids early on that carries through, even when they're flying by themselves, well, which is going to happen. Sachin, I have to go because I've got to go change my passwords right now. Sachin Puri <laughs> is the Vice President of Marketing for McAfee. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Cheers. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.